It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's Tuesday, November 21st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I do have a launch spiel today. I have to admit it. But I've been thinking a little bit about some municipal costs. So recently it was reported that a dirty cop One Louis Scarcella has cost the city a lot of money. A lot of money because his testimony had to be thrown out. The people who were convicted on his say-so were able to sue. And so far, taxpayers have paid $110 million. No one really cares, I guess. It made for an interesting article in the newspaper. But what if every household, there are three, about 3.2 million households in New York City. What if they all got a $35 bill and they called it the Scarcella tax? And people said, what the hell is the Scarcella tax? And they looked into it and they said, wow, that dirty cop sure cost us a lot. Let's try not to have dirty cops in the future. Maybe they'd say that. Or how about this one? So in the 90s, and this was uh, based on nothing other than the desire to have good teachers, the city started testing teachers. You had to pass a minimum qualification to get certified to teach in New York. The thinking went quite obviously. We want our teachers to be good at teaching and know a thing or two. First, there was the National Teacher Examination. New York State didn't develop it, but there was a uh, task force that decided that this would be the test that teachers had to take. And while white teachers passed at a pretty high clip, black and Latino teachers did not. The city understood this. They redid the test in 1993. NTE phased out the liberal arts and science test or last test was instituted again. Black and Latino teachers did poorly. As a result, the lifetime earnings of many Black and Latino teachers were less than they would have been. Quite a deal less, especially given the time value of money. So now, after many years and many lawsuits, it has been determined that this racial disparity was an example of unfair institutional systemic racism. And the city meaning all the people in the city have to pay $1.8 billion. No one knows this. No one in New York is talking about this. But I wonder, what if a bill came to all 3.2 million households and this bill was for 500 or so dollars and it was called the last test tax? I wonder if people would notice or just wonder if that was fair, unfair, or they didn't want to pay. Anyway, these are my musings. If you want more musings, extensive musings, and where I think the Gaza war is going, well, the spiel is the place for you. But first, and this is quite different from all the seriousness you have heard around it, we have a really fun interview with Carlos Boozer, former NBA player, two-time All-Star. If you ask 
Our producer, Corey, he would tell you that Carlos Boozer made a million dollars over the course of his career. In actuality, his lifetime earnings were much higher. I said, Corey, I'm on the uh, NBA reference page, and this might not be accurate, but I have the list of uh, Carlos Boozer's cumulative pay, right? Guess. And so here was here was Corey's first guess. Do you remember what you started in with? Oh, first thing he did ask, how long did he play? And I was like, 13 years. And then Corey said... <laughs> Five million. Five million. I said higher. <laughs> and he said <laughs> 10 million. <laughs> yeah. Well, it took a while to get to the almost 150. And by the way, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I mean, it. as a big fan, you deserved it. <laughs> Carlos Boozer is out with a new book titled Every Shot Counts A Memoir of Resilience. In this interview, we will discuss growing up in Alaska, playing with LeBron James, and more Carlos Boozer up next. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Carlos Boozer was a 13-year NBA vet, and I just got to say he was my kind of player. He played hard. He got rebounds. All his teammates loved playing with him. There were all these advanced stats about pluses and minuses, and uh, let's just say that his team was always better with him on the court. Now, from reading his memoir, I see why. The name of the book is Every Shot Counts, a Memoir of Resilience. Carlos Boozer, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So the book starts with something you never talked about. It's the really f the formative experience of your life, I think it's uh, fair to say. And it was a tragedy when you were six and your friend Chris was a seven-year-old. You were living in D.C. And why don't you, as best as you can, tell the story of what happened to Chris? Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's just I felt like it was time to share his story. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of times people don't understand like the motivation or trauma. We don't always get our, our childhood traumas healed. And I thought this was a good time to, to open that wound and, and heal from that. And also just honor Chris and, and his memory. So, you know, we're young, we go, to, we go to the court every day to play ball when we can um, after school or after whatever, and go get a sandwich, go play ball. This is a day like any other day, right? Chris, a lot better than me, had handles, could dribble. I mean, think of like Stephon Marbury kind of handles, loaded mm -hmm. the ground, had all the tricks on the, on the street game, and we're playing ball. Uh, normal day for us, he makes a move on a kid, breaks his ankles, crosses him over. The whole place goes bananas. You know, everybody's running on the court, uh, screaming like, oh, and, and I don't know who the other kid is. I, we have no idea. We're kids. We're babies, really. And uh, next thing I know, I just see him run run to his bike, grab a gun, 
and shoot towards Chris's direction. He falls into me. Um, he's bleeding everywhere, and people are running and screaming and scattering. And you know, I literally watched him take his last breath. And for me, it was it was difficult. And I'm six years old. You know, I'm I'm a child, and I don't talk about this. Me and my family handle it the best way we can. And how do you even prepare for that as a parent? Um, but that was that's something that's that's been with me since I was a child. And I writing this book gave me the the ability to heal from it, to go through it, to reopen it, to discuss it with people I love and care about, and uh, got a chance for other people to get to know me. Yeah, and it obviously sears itself into your memory, and it has the effect of prompting your family to get out of there, to move out of Washington, D.C., and I guess you could say you never look back, but I want to ask you about this. So people should know that Carlos moved to Alaska. Uh, He's famously from Alaska. You couldn't watch any of his games in college or when he got to the NBA, only the second player in the NBA ever from Alaska, and it seems... Well, the question is, how does one come to Alaska? It was always presented as a fun fact, but it was never really addressed. Because if you look in the media guide, it will say that Carlos Boozer, born in West Germany, because that's where his dad was stationed in the military. But then you go to Duke and you're from Alaska. But it tells me that the Washington, D.C. period of your life has a big hold on your memory and my question is, to some extent, did you feel at all guilty about what happened in D.C. when you were a little kid? No, I don't think so. I just think it was something people didn't know. You know, I mean, yeah. obviously, the, the people close to me knew that I was from D.C. and grew up there and uh, moved to Alaska. But um, this was an opportunity for me to share my full entire story. So I did so. So I looked it up and I tried to find documentation of the actual incident with you and Chris. And you did this too, because late in your memoir, you talk about trying to find Chris's mom, not being able to, and your partner gave you some good advice, which is that she would certainly want Chris's memory to be honored, even if you couldn't get in touch with her. But you know, in 1988, the Washington Post was writing about whatever killings they could, and they would miss some. And here's, here's something that they wrote in November, late November of that year for context. The number of persons killed this month was 36, the Washington Post wrote in 1988. So far, 323 have been slain this year. In comparison, 241 district residents were killed or missing during the entire Vietnam War. So that to me indicates that they were just trying to communicate something to get readers' heads around the carnage. And what your family did was to get away from the carnage. Do you think that if you stayed in D.C., you would not have become the player or person that you are now? I don't know. That's the thing about it, right? My mom and dad did what they thought was best. And they, you know, my sister, I mean, my dad's sister uh, lived up in Alaska. She was married to a guy in the military as well. So um, Gerald and, and Vicky took us in you know, for like two or three weeks until we got our feet settled, found our own place. And, you know, back then there was a lot of crime. I mean, it was, it's through the roof. Like it was stuff being reported, like you said, stuff not being reported, like you said. I mean, it, t- it took the police like 45 minutes just to get to the scene. You know what I mean? Like there's stuff, stuff like that. It's very difficult to fathom what my family and my parents were, what was going through their mind. But you know, the other thing with, with, with uh, gang-related violence, you just never know what the outcome might be, the spill-up might be, the, the domino effect might be. You just never know, you know. So 
ultimately, I think my parents made the right choice. And you think about how it played out, right? All yeah. five of their kids all went to college. All five of their kids graduated from college. And that happened because we went to Alaska. Now, would that have happened if we would have stayed in D.C.? Maybe and maybe not. But yeah. it did happen after we moved to Juneau, Alaska. Well, it did happen. And, you know, just speaking about the economics of your familial situation when you were in D.C., there were nights when you literally had to sleep in a stairwell and your dad's this veteran and he's skilled and he was always able to do a good job, but there weren't jobs in D.C. So in Alaska, he found work. And that alone argues for you uh, for the wisdom of getting out of that circumstance when you were six. But I want to ask you about this. And the book talks a lot about your development as a player. And a lot of my listeners, and you do write the book for a general audience, so you know, you'll, know you for instance, say, and here's how field goal percentage is calculated, so we understand the book is pitched to a little bit of a, an audience like the people who might be listening to this show. So what people should know is that great players in America, including Alaska, get discovered. They go to camps, and there's a way for just about anyone who shows skills and has a significant degree of height, let's put that in there, to get noticed. But from what I understand, no matter where you're from in America, uh, if you had the skill level that you had when you were 12 and 13 year old years old, you would get on people's radar. But my question is, how about when you're a junior in high school or a senior in high school? Had you gotten all you could have out of the competition that Alaska offered? Oh, man, Alaska was great, man. Let me just <laughs> start there. I mean, just basketball-wise, phenomenal. A lot of great, great teams, great coaches. Shout out to my high school coach, George Houston, who's in the Alaska Hall of Fame. Legendary basketball coach up there. There's a lot of great talent. There may not be like NBA-level talent, mm -hmm. but a lot of really good high school basketball players in Alaska. Um, obviously, we had Trajan Langdon, myself, Mario. We all went pro and had great careers in college and so on. But there's a lot of really good basketball players. Basketball is probably the, maybe the second favorite sport next to hockey, obviously, yeah. for obvious reasons. Um, but don't sleep on the Iditarod either, by the way. But <laughs> there's a lot of good basketball Do they recruit the top Huskies, the top right. four-year-old class of Husky? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Um, but there, yeah, to your point, you're Fluffy's right. a five paw recruit. Okay, sorry, I had to make the point. Go ahead. To, to, to your point, there's a process. You know, you go to these camps, you get noticed. You want to go to uh, camps that are called exposure camps. That mm -hmm. exposure just means there'll be scouts there, whether that's NBA, college, different levels of college. There, there may even now, because of the the platforms that we have now, there may even be some overseas scouts there for different levels of basketball. So. And I, as a 12-year-old, we didn't know anything about this. I just wanted to become a better basketball player. I love the game. My parents found this camp in California called the Double Pump Camp in Cal State Dominguez Hills. Um, we painted we, we up enough money to go, get there, and I'm like, whoa. Like, I'm looking at these guys are big, they're strong, they're making a move I've never seen before. You know, I, I saw, I mean, this is before I got a chance to become friends with Baron Davis, but he's making move, dribble moves I've never seen before. I'm seeing Richard Jefferson and Gilbert Arenas is there and Chris Burgess and all these guys that were just studs. And I'm right there amongst them. I didn't know I was that good of a basketball. I just love playing the game. And next thing I know, all these coaches come up to my family, my mom and my dad, and I'm getting letters from coaches. And there is a process, but I'll tell you this, you, if, if you, if you have aspirations, you got to find yourself in one of these camps. And I was mm -hmm. fortunate enough to be able to get down to one. And the great thing about today's game is there's so many more opportunities. There's like, we didn't have social media when I was growing up. You can literally post a video of your highlights on social media 
And there may be a scout that comes across their page and they'll discover you. But to answer your question, going from Alaska eventually to the NBA was a hell of a journey. Right. So I want to get to this one great story in the book. So the listeners should know your full name is Carlos Austin Boozer Jr. And you're showing up in this camp and you're good. You're really good. People are interested. They're talking to you. You're the kind of guy who could, you know, maybe make it to the next level. There's some interest in you. And there is an AAU team. And I guess the coach shows a little bit of interest in you uh, as a high school junior. And then you explain, oh, no, no, no. Junior is my name, Carlos Austin Boozer Jr. It's not my high school class. I'm 12 years old. Tell me what happens then. Yeah, so I go to this camp, uh, double pump camp. I play a game. I think I have a meteor game, like 12 points, seven rebounds, something like that. Nice and, nice, nice game against future NBA talent. Right, right it's a good point. And um, uh, Mott's, Darren Mott Sabora is an AU uh, travel travel team coach. Come up to my mom and goes, hey, I know, I know your son's a junior in high school, but I think we can still get him, you know, a scholarship. He's pretty talented. And my mom goes, a junior? No, his, his, his name is Carlos Austin Boozer Jr. He's a junior, but he's, he's 12. He's about to be an eighth grader. And he goes, what? <laughs> he's only in the eighth grade? Oh, my God. I got to have you on my team. Like, he, he just gets so excited. because How, how tall were you then? Uh, I don't know. Maybe six feet, maybe 5'11". I, oh, okay. I, wasn't, yeah. I wasn't super tall yet, but I was like, you know, I wasn't standing out. I'll put it like that. There's right. a lot of six, seven guys and six, eight guys at the camp, and I wasn't that, but. Anyway, um, and that's how my story began. Mots took us to Vegas, and next thing you know, we're we're playing in these huge tournaments, and we get invited to all these individual camps. And after that, every summer, I would go travel with EBO, and we go to all these different tournaments, and there were scouts at every tournament. And that's when, you know, a few years later, Coach K comes. So you are a top recruit. I've seen different rankings. You're in the top ten in high school. You go to Duke. Best basketball school in the country, one of the top two or three best schools. You win a national championship. You come out for the draft. But at this point, there were no illusions you're going to go top 10, but you thought maybe first round, you fall to the second round. And there's some analysis in the book, but what was going on was at the time, the NBA convinced itself that foreigners, tall foreigners were the future of the NBA. And while you're a somewhat tall American, you didn't play into what the flavor of the moment was. But I'm wondering if you think maybe there was something else, like something about your game, the fact that you were injured at Duke, or I have a little bit of a theory. When I watch you in college, you were just so much stronger than the college competition. And I think when you see a strong guy in college, NBA scouts convince themselves, oh, that'll be hard to translate. He just won't be able to bully everyone in the NBA. And I wouldn't say bully, but it did translate. You were one of the strongest players in the NBA with you, it translated. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was also the first year that you could draft a player from overseas and you could keep them overseas and it wouldn't count against your salary cap. Mm -hmm. So that year you saw an influx of a ton of European guys coming to the NBA and they weren't actually coming to the NBA. They got drafted, but they stayed with their team in their country. And so that you could have like a guy that you could watch him develop overseas, but you had his draft rights. So that, that my draft was the first year of that. So you saw like 13 guys go in the first round that normally wouldn't even be in the draft. But regardless of that, it put a crazy chip on my shoulder, and I couldn't wait to prove to people that I belonged. Do you know how much salary you lost in the first couple of years? I would probably say uh, north of $4 million. 
So there's a chip on your shoulder and you got to the next salary in the second year of Cleveland and you get a teammate named LeBron James. And people should know that LeBron was good, but then Carlos Boozer had a pep talk with him and then LeBron became the LeBron we know. I'm getting that right, correct? <laughs> no. I wish I could I take credit. Book. That's what it said. I wish Go up I could to him in the credit. locker room. You're like, come on, LeBron. I wish I could take credit for his greatness, but no. <laughs> LeBron was terrific. And I think we all knew that he was a better scorer the, than any other option we had on our team. But he just, we really wanted to fit in. So he was a great passer. One of his best attributes to being able to get everybody else the ball in ways that we could be successful. But he could jump over everybody. He was faster than everybody. His jump shot was developing. But I, there was a point where I'm like, man, we, we need you to be the guy. Like, I, I know Ricky is scoring 25 a game, but we need you to be the guy. If you're the guy, we can go places. And so I just told him that. And I, it was it wasn't. There was nothing that is something that we weren't all thinking. We all knew that he was the guy. It just needed he needed to know that we believed in him. Yeah. And once and once he took over the school, remember, I mean, this first game he, he had twenty five, like eight and eight as a as a freshly eighteen year old kid against the Sacramento Kings, who were one of the best teams in the NBA. They yeah. were a contender at the time. Yeah. You know, C Webb and Vadi Divac and the whole squad they had. And LeBron comes in and has twenty five, eight and eight against a contender who lost to the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. Like. Let's not kid ourselves. The kid was really, really special. I just, I think he just needed to hear from a teammate or somebody like, look, you got to go and we'll follow yeah. your lead. And I just, I'm a leader. So I did that. I was like, look, LeBron, this is, this is your team. Go do your, go do your thing and we'll follow you. And he did. And we almost made the playoffs that year. It probably actually speaks well of him, given his ability that he didn't come in assuming, oh, I'm going to be. Uh, a superstar, i.e. the LeBron we all knew that he could be and would soon be. Yeah, I mean, I think he's – it's like I would, I would relate it to being like the new kid at school, right? Mm -hmm. You come in, you don't have any friends yet, but you want people to like you. And so you do – in the basketball field, you do what people like. They like to get the ball, right? So he's yeah. passing, and he's, sometimes he's overpassing, and he's great at it. But I was like, dude, you have a mismatch almost every night. Nobody can stay in front of you. Nobody can run. Nobody can jump with you. Like, and you're a great passer, so I was like, you just, you got to take over the team, man. To be a great NBA player, do you have to be a little selfish? There's moments, you know, there's moments where it's going to be, you remember all the criticism he would get when he would make a move and he would draw like a triple team and he'd yeah. pass and make the right pass and people were mad that he wasn't taking the shot over three people. He's a basketball player and he's smart and he's a quarterback and, and, like, in, in that sense and he'd make the right play and people would criticize him for that. But literally, if there's two guys on you, that means there's somebody else open. And he would find that somebody else. And it was the right basketball play. And sometimes they would lose those games. And so yeah. he would take all this criticism for not being Kobe and taking, you know, taking on the whole team and making the shot or not being MJ and taking on the whole team and making the shot. But he was making the right basketball play. Carlos Boozer is a two-time NBA All-Star, 13-year NBA veteran, and the author of a really interesting book. Great talking to you, Carlos. Thanks for having me. Anytime. And now the spiel. I want to talk about where I see the war in Gaza going, but also a little bit where it actually stands. I don't usually make predictions. I mean, what special insight do I have? But in this case, I don't think the insight's special. 
I just think it's a little more clear than so very much of what we're hearing about the war because so much of that is filtered through a lens of prior beliefs or trying to appeal to a specific audience. And I struggle to trust the vast majority of analysis on this issue. And you know where I'm coming from. You know generally where I'm coming from. I think you also know it's not the case that I say things to appeal to an audience. I think a lot of my Israel content has been extremely unappealing to large parts of my audience. And by the way, I do care about that and I do hear you, but I ask for you to hear me out. Maybe some of these insights or predictions will resonate with you. So first of all, let's start by acknowledging where I was wrong. Here are some areas I was wrong. I thought Israel would go in sooner and heavier and probably a little stupider. I thought fighting in tunnels would be an absolute bloodbath for Hamas and for the Israelis. Israel has paid Uh, some cost. Hamas has paid much, much more of a cost. But of course, the saddest part is the Gazan civilians have paid the highest cost of all. I thought that Israel's public-facing explanations to the world would be a little better. I mean, five days after the attack of October 7th, the Minister of Information resigned and essentially dissolved her post. No, you won't be needing any public diplomacy, except they will. The events of the last couple months show us they will, they do, they're not very good at explaining things to the Western world. They have people within Israel and affiliated with Israel, maybe don't live there now, who'd be quite effective at communicating to an American audience, but they seem unwilling or unable to recognize this fact. So that is surprising. They had well-spoken people with American accents who could go on American TV that can make arguments that could connect to American audience, but they choose not to. That's surprising. So that's on me. Well, what's on them? Well, there are a couple of notions we heard constantly pre-invasion, post-attack. We heard them on the eve of the war with Al-Qaeda as well. One is that, this is a big one, you can't defeat an idea. And Hamas represents the idea, the idea of the resistance to Israel. All right, so number one, there are a lot of ways to resist or oppose Israel that aren't Hamas. And two, it is not actually true that you can't defeat an idea. Let's take them one by one. Number one, even if you don't weigh into the question of defeating an idea, it is certainly true that you could defeat Hamas, the specific terrorists who pulled the October 7th attack. And destroying these specific terrorists, even if there are others out there who would do violence if the means and methods presented themselves, destroying these specific guys would make Israel safer. But again, you can defeat an idea. The thing is, when you defeat an idea, there's no body. You don't put a toe tag on the idea. I mean, maybe you could say something like, you bury it in the unmarked grave of memory. Because a defeated idea just isn't remarked upon that much. It's not debated for sport. It just becomes a thing that people used to talk about. When someone doesn't think about an idea anymore, you generally don't think about not thinking about it. The U.S. spent a decade fighting al-Qaeda and ISIS. And where is al-Qaeda now? I mean, there's a group called al-Qaeda in the Maghreb and al-Shabaab operates out of Somalia. Can be said to have some ties to al-Qaeda, but al-Qaeda is no more. The ideas, the ideas of the al-Qaeda leaders who we killed, Ayman al-Zwahiri, Osama bin Laden, they're gone. Do you even know that we killed Ayman al-Zwahiri last year? Yeah, remember that? That's how prevalent and prominent his ideas were. I know there are a lot of people, 
dozens of people within the CIA or the NSC who are tracking these groups, groups said to be affiliated with Al-Qaeda. These groups are nothing special. I'm glad they're monitoring them. By all means, do so. They're a defeated organization and they are a defeated idea. I guess every idea exists first as drama, then as farce, and eventually as a kitschy reboot among the TikTok teens. But Al-Qaeda's call for global jihad now goes unheard, its version of the caliphate ignored. The ideas are dead because the people behind them are dead. It's not as if dissatisfaction with the United States or the U.S. military is dead, but we don't even think about it in the form of a global jihadist terrorist network. ISIS, by the way, it's all but gone too. Well, it's in retreat. It does operate. ISIS operates out of a tiny area in Iraq and Syria. But no, it's not a landmass the size of Belgium, as we could have said about five and a half years ago. ISIS has no legitimate means to attract adherence to their ideology. In fact, they don't have much of an ideology because they don't have much of a fighting force. We killed another idea. Can resistance to Israel be killed? No. But the Hamas version of it can, which would be a good thing. Right after the October 7th attack, pundits like Tom Friedman wrote columns saying, isn't going into Gaza just what Hamas wants? Or take this headline in the Atlantic. Israel is walking into a trap. Storming into Gaza will fulfill Phil Hamas's wish. That was Hussein Ibish. Friedman, October 19th. Israel is about to make a terrible mistake. October 10th. I hope the president, meaning Biden, is asking Israel to ask itself this question as it considers what to do next in Gaza. What do my worst enemies want me to do and how can I do just the opposite? That didn't seem really compelling at the time. That didn't seem to me that well thought through. It just seemed to be an instinct, a heuristic. Do the opposite of what the bad guys want or what we have told ourselves we want or what Tom Friedman tells us we want. But I get it. We were reeling a month or really almost six weeks after all that. And it seems like Israel's military success is isolating Hamas. And it's also keeping Iran and Hezbollah at arm's length. Let those idiots immolate themselves, say Iran and Hezbollah, the two most powerful anti-Israeli forces on the planet. We tend to think that when a surprising, horrific maneuver is successfully pulled off, that the people who got it right know so much. They're so much smarter than we are in every single way. We said this after 9-11, Al-Qaeda lurked in every shadow. If they could pull that off, who knows what else they could pull off? The answer was, yeah, they could evade capture for about a decade and then die in a military raid. Hamas... Al-Qaeda, they exploited flaws, but there was a large portion of Goliath being asleep on the job, right? So we tend to credit the force that scored the unusual success. Think of them, build them up as an otherworldly power. We get scared. Don't provoke them. This is just what they want. Well, actually, well, actually, not only is being destroyed by the IDF not what Hamas wanted, maybe their own self-interest is flawed. Right, half of column writing or being a public pundit is talking about how the countries where columnists thrive are always undertaking actions that aren't in their self-interest. What about the places that would kill a columnist for stepping out of line? They can't make mistakes. They can't ever act in ways that are actually contrary to their own long-term self-interests. It seems Hamas made such a mistake. Using the phrase, a suicide attack on itself... To describe Hamas, the New York Times reporter Ben Hubbard gave this assessment to the podcast, The Daily. In my talks with the Hamas leaders, there was really no sense of a grand plan for what comes next. 
they definitely wanted to hit Israel as hard as they could, and they wanted to hit Israel inside of Israel, and they were not particularly concerned about what sort of you know response this would bring and what it would mean to the people of Gaza. It was that the attack somehow would be enough and would open up some new way. But there is no new way. There's a growing consensus that Hamas totally misstepped. So here's what I think. I think Hamas will lose. And I know the sophisticated thing to say, ah, but at what price victory? And if Hamas loses, can we truly say that Israel has won? Okay, fine. I enjoy the sophistication of such phrases. But we will be able to say that thousands of Hamas fighters are dead and thousands more are arrested, and perhaps their leaders will also be punished. That I have no idea about. They seem pretty safely ensconced in luxury quarters. But I think that their capacity as a military force will be destroyed. Can you even defeat an idea? Well, you can kill Hamas, and Israel is killing Hamas. What if I'm wrong? How would it play out that Hamas wins? Okay. Well, Hamas' strategy seems to be a theory that I do not think has ever worked in the history of warfare. Hamas wants to defeat Israel by turning the opinions of citizens living outside the conflict against one of the participants of the conflict, one of the deeply engaged participants. In the history of warfare, opinion certainly plays a role. It turns tides, especially in democracies. Democracies are sensitive to opinion. They sour on war. They sour on their own war. When American troops were dying for nothing in Vietnam, that turned the tide. Yes, we say it was mass protests and citizens taking to the streets. But no, look at public opinion. Look at how tightly it tracked the death toll in Vietnam. It was because American boys were dying. The death toll went up. The popularity of the war went down. LBJ didn't stand for re-election. It ended the Vietnam War. The Korean War went in a similar way. The Afghanistan War in Russia, not a democracy, but they didn't want to send more of their boys to slaughter anymore. Take France and Algeria. Public opinion turned against that country internally. They turned against the country pursuing the war. But it was within that country. In Gaza... We're talking about a theory of outside opinion affecting the prosecution of a war. If outsiders raise money and send arms or fighters, yeah, that could have an effect. You know, in 1821, the Greek Civil War was quite the cause celeb in Paris. The Spanish Civil War was also a cause celeb. But the toll of the Spanish Civil War wasn't just the sound of the bells. It was the lives of American fighters who went there. So unless people marry their opinions to guns and arms and the ability to join the fight, I don't think it much matters, or at least it hasn't in the past. I think of Biafra, liberal Westerners held concerts, tried to raise money. The Nigerian government crushed the rebellion. And even then, the strategy of the fighters was to actually fight back, actually inflict casualties on the other side. But in Gaza, the tactic of Hamas is to get Israel to inflict casualties on Hamas's own side, even though Hamas doesn't care much for the average Gazan. I mean, how could outrage in the salons of Europe at the campuses of the U.S. actually win the war for Hamas? Well, you could say, well, the U.S. gives Israel a lot of money. But it's not as if the U.S. can turn off the spigot and convince one of the world's most powerful militaries to simply abandon its mission. It's a mission strongly supported by the vast majority of the Israeli citizens, and they are a democracy. There have been a number of times when the United States told an ally, stand down, we're not in favor of your war, and the ally ignored them. Saudi Arabia versus Yemen. 
Saudi Arabia did not listen. They didn't win that war either, by the way. This is not against the backdrop of the American public having turned away from the Israelis. By a three to one margin, America still supports Israel over Palestine. Not the youth, the youth defect, Democrats differ, but public support in the U.S. isn't close to pro-Palestinian. A poll conducted last week gave Americans the choice. Should the U.S. stay out? Should it mediate? Should it favor the Israelis? Should it favor the Palestinians? Over a third said the U.S. should mediate, be a neutral mediator. Just under a third said the U.S. should support Israel and supporting the Palestinians, 4%. 4% said that. So Israel is winning tactically, militarily, and is at least not losing the relevant, though not determinative, poll of public opinion. So you're telling me that this will be the first conflict in history that ends because outsiders, a minority of outsiders to the conflict, objected from afar. I'll tell you what this plays out like. It plays out like it's not a war. It reminds me of nothing so much as the George Floyd protests. They got massive attention. They were transnational. People in the UK tore down their statues. A similar coalition was behind them as are behind most of the Palestinian causes. But what the George Floyd protests told us was that a very loud, vocal, impassioned minority, which maybe eventually could become a majority, can get people out to the streets, clamoring for change. Now, of course, June of 2020, during the protest, 67% of Americans supported Black Lives Matter. 20-something percent support Palestine, broadly speaking. So this is a lot like George Floyd. And let's remember all the changes that the George Floyd protests wrought. Almost nothing. Well, let's be fair. I had DeRay McKesson on the show. There were some laws passed in some states like Maryland and New Mexico. They wrote the rules about qualified immunity. So three or four states passed some incremental changes. I do not see the case for the groundswell of sentiment in the West actually literally lowering one rifle that would otherwise be aimed, letting stand one building that would otherwise be flattened, allowing for the survival of one Hamas fighter who would otherwise be killed. I would say that Israel would decimate Hamas, but decimate means reduced by a tenth. Israel will probably do the inverse of that. They will destroy the vast majority of Hamas fighters. And I think the world's opinion might not like that. I don't think it'll matter. I think the idea of Hamas will be destroyed. I think the conventional wisdom will be Hamas committed suicide, Hezbollah is too smart for that. We hope the Iranians know not to engage in such direct provocations. I think Netanyahu will probably lose the next election. I think the Israelis will then reconstitute their government. And I think the UN and international organizations will document all the horrors that befell the Gazans. And it won't really matter that much. In the long term, support for Israel will decrease among young people in the United States. And this could have a long-term bearing on the funding for Israel, which might weaken the Iron Dome or weaken the Israeli military, and maybe embolden Hezbollah or Iran to attack. Those things are all interrelated. And then in two or three or five or 10 years, no one will look back at the Tom Friedman, don't fall for the trap articles and say, wow, that guy was wrong. It'll all simply be ignored, forgotten. The idea of Hamas will stop being potent, and the idea that you can't defeat an idea won't at all be discredited. People will keep saying it. It's very attractive, romantic, transcendent. The people who say it are people who work in the world of ideas and they want it to be true. 
They speak the language of language, whereas the world understands the language of might. And I understand all of this might not come to pass. I am no seer. I'm just interested to see where I'm wrong and where I'm right. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pascas, CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Do Peru, and thanks for listening.